And I must admit, I've enjoyed uh, this week looking into his life, uh, a bit like Gareth. Uh, he's probably, of all the big reformers, the one that I knew the least about. And uh, he's probably had fewer books written about him, but actually, as we'll see, we share far more in common with Ulrich Zwingli in lots of ways than we might do, uh, even with someone uh, big like Martin Luther. Uh, so this is uh, Ulrich Zwingli, a bit of background. Before we learn about him, though, we really need to know about this guy. Uh, this is Erasmus of Rotterdam, uh, normally just known to us as Erasmus. And when we look into the life of Zwingli, we need to know a bit about the background of what was going on in his time. And this man was a prominent person in Europe and in the church at the time, and uh, he was a big mover in a movement uh, that started a little bit before the Reformation that came to be called humanism. Now, when I say humanism, lots of you will be thinking about humanism today. Don't think that. That's something a, a bit different. This is humanism, which was to do with the study of the humanities, as opposed to the study of scientists. So a humanist was someone who looked at the humanities, whereas a scientist was someone who looked at science. So Erasmus and those around him really were in a movement that encouraged the learning of ancient languages, like Greek, and that's why the language exchange program in the EU is known as the Erasmus program. It's named after him. Um, that suddenly gave people in Western Europe access to early church fathers. Um, before that, all that was widely available from sort of the early church was a collection of sayings from the church fathers known as the sentences. And it was a sort of a textbook for priests and people who wanted to learn about the church fathers. And it contained quotes from them but it pushed a specific agenda, namely the official line of the church. So all you could get really of them was these little snippets of their theology, or now people could read them for themselves. But more importantly than even the early church fathers, it gave people access to the New Testament in its original form. Erasmus produced a new Latin translation of the New Testament, but he also published the Greek text of the New Testament. And like the reformers to follow, the printing presses now made this book available to the masses. So Erasmus and the humanists wanted to reform the church, but they really wanted it just to become a bit more intellectual, and they wanted it to, uh, to reform the practice of the church, not the theology. Anyone looking at this era, era must acknowledge that corruption and immorality were rampant in the church at this point. Popes claiming to be celibate had mistresses and many children who they promoted to high positions. Positions in the church were bought and sold. And many priests were prayed for, paid for essentially doing nothing. They were just sort of given a position in the church. Parishes uh, were left with empty pulpits. And even when they were occupied, they were occupied with teaching that wasn't really the Bible. And people who did teach the Bible were viewed with suspicion, as we'll see. So they wanted the church cleaning up, but not to change. And they would become allies to the reformers in some ways, and enemies in others, as we'll see. So enter uh, Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was born in 1484, 20 years after Erasmus, but only two months before Martin Luther, so they really were about the same age. He was born in Switzerland, which at the time was a loose confederation of city-states all with their own governments, some with their own treaties and outside allegiances. Zwingli was born into a German-speaking one, and he was the third son in a farming family. 
But his dad was also a local magistrate as well as a farmer. So his sort of respected family helped run the town. And he was educated by his uncle. And he went on to further education in Basel. Uh, Basel, I don't know how to pronounce it, where he learned Latin. After three years there, he went on to Bern, the now capital of Switzerland. And that's where he was introduced to humanism. And this time there really set the course for the rest of his life. In many ways, Singley would become the fruition of what humanism started. He was introduced to the biblical texts through humanism. And learning what the church had taught in the past, Singley would develop views that would shape the Reformation. But this is just the beginning of the process at this point. Singley carried on his studies in Vienna and elsewhere, uh, and at uh, a young age he became a priest in his 20s. Though at that point he actually studied very little theology. So again, it's sort of like he got this position sort of organised by his uncle. But he was still a popular priest in the area that he settled. His favourite activity though was reading. That's what he really loved to do. That's what he spent his days doing, reading. Really, he was a humanist scholar with a priest's salary. He went about uh, reading uh, all the books he could get his hands on. He loved books. I sort of feel a bit of affinity with it there. You know, sort of understand that desire to want to read books all day. And most of the money he received as a priest, apparently, he spent on books. So he'd get hold of these texts that the humanists were putting out in their original Greek. He would gobble up the latest editions and also new texts that were coming out from elsewhere. And his views really developed slowly over time as he sort of took in all the stuff that he was reading. He was, however, a churchman in a corrupt church. And he later admits that at this point, as a young priest, unable to marry because of the laws of the church in those days, he found his comforts elsewhere, let's put it that way. Though never with married women or with young girls, he notes in his own uh, writings. A bit of a clue that what was the norm of the day was more the other way uh, for clergy at this point. But even as a priest, he was involved uh, in, in other areas of life as well. He was involved in a, uh, at least one war. Um, lots of skirmishes sort of took place between the city-states at this point. And Switzerland got some of its wealth from essentially having a whole population that could be hired out as soldiers to other nations. Sort of where we get the idea of the Swiss Guard from. They were the sort of expert soldiers of Europe. And the Pope at this point held a large chunk of Italy called the Papal States. And Zwingli was there with the soldiers on behalf of the Pope to take land off the surrounding cities as they invaded other cities around the Papal States. He campaigned in his native Switzerland too for men to go and fight uh, in these battles as well and was rewarded financially by Rome when they heard of his support for the, the wars. That's partly why we saw him church where put your armour on. He was involved in, in actual fighting. Singley eventually ended up in Zurich, which is where the biggest things happened in his life. He went to the Great Minster in 1519, age 35. And this was a more demanding role than his other ones, and he complains in his autobiographical notes that he's really frustrated because he's got less time for reading. Uh, when he gets to Zurich, he can't spend all his time reading. He has to be involved with preaching and doing more. And when he gets to Zurich, like I said, some of his views have already established by this point. And he sets his way preaching through Matthew's Gospel, verse by verse, week by week. But this was actually met with suspicion by other church leaders in the area. He was not reading the texts that were prescribed by Rome for that week. He was not teaching the official line of the church. 
He was actually teaching what the passage was talking about. And really, that's what he did all the way through his ministry, was just open the text of the Bible and teach them. And his theology seems to develop as he preached through the texts. Many of his views, like I said, have already become settled by this point. But as he goes on to develop, really, as he preaches through the Bible. And he ends up with what we now know as a Protestant position. But at this point, he's just basically teaching what's there. Early on, he got hold of some books in, uh, in German while he was in Zurich from a man in Wittenberg. And he was surprised to find that he was in agreement with basically everything that this man was teaching. The man, of course, was Martin Luther, the German reformer. Two years before Zwingli had come to Zurich, Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. But it's worth noting at this point, Luther was still in the Roman Catholic Church. He hadn't been excommunicated, as was Zwingli. So all the way through this, they would have considered themselves Catholic. Luther was only excommunicated in 1521. In other words, at this point, there was no formal breach. There was no Protestant church. It's likely that Zwingli saw himself and Luther and the humanists as a broader movement as reforming within the Catholic Church at this point. Zwingli seems to be much more slow and steady, a diplomat, a coalition builder, who's trying to do that from within the church. Whereas Luther sort of comes in a bit like a wrecking ball, uh, trying to smash everything in the way. Zwingli, it would seem, would just rather get on with preaching the Bible. Whereas Luther, as you read through his biography, seems to enjoy the fight a bit more than Zwingli does. And that's what Zwingli continues to do in Zurich. He teaches the Bible. And the problems start to arise in Zurich when they actually start to apply what he's teaching. They listen to what he said, and they start to do with what he's been saying. So in 1522, there was something that's come to be known as the affair of the sausages. This is the one that I mentioned uh, at uh, Reformation Day when we do that. We have our, our sausage barbecue, uh, barbecue. But it's more complicated than I, I really put it across, really, when we, we do that. To quote the late Queen Elizabeth, recollections may vary uh, with exactly what went on there. But certainly in Zurich, sausages were publicly eaten during Lent. That's what happened. Sausages were publicly eaten during Lent, which was illegal in Catholic canon law, but of course it was entirely fine uh, biblically. We read it there in our passage in uh, 1 Timothy. All food, if it's received with thanksgiving, is okay, is clean, is good. But, um, uh, and we read, read there as well that we shouldn't require the abstinence from food, but that's what was happening. Mm. Now, whether Zwingli actually partook is a matter of debate. Some people say he did, some people say he didn't. But certainly what happened afterwards is that Zwingli defended the sausage eaters. He actually said what they'd done was absolutely fine, biblically. There was no problem with them eating sausages because we couldn't require the abstinence of foods. And this causes quite a stir, if you'd imagine, within uh, Zurich. And Zurich, the church in Zurich, counts this as the beginning of their reformation, when it really started to take off. But here it's worth noting, again, there's no formal break at this point. Even though this has taken place, England has defended them, they're still classified or counting themselves within the church. But a more formal break comes when Zwingli publishes what he calls his 67 articles. Not quite as catchy as 95 pieces, is it? 67 articles. And these were actually adopted by the Council of Zurich. So the men of Zurich got together and they voted on it 
and they agreed on it. And what he put together was a well-reasoned objection to the official teaching of the church. Within those articles, they reject the Pope and the Mass, but they do that in a really level-headed way. It's not Martin Luther sort of declaring all sorts of stuff. It's really well-reasoned as you go through. If you want to read them, they are just called the 67 Articles. And they really just come across as being logical extensions of what the Bible says. The only bit that's a little bit salacious is when he rejects celibacy for priests. And in doing so, in Article 49, this is what it says, I know of no greater offence than to forbid priests to have wives, yet allow them to engage prostitutes. That's about as salacious as it gets. But he makes his point, though, doesn't he? That's what's happening in the church of his day. They were adopted by the council, and then really is when we have the break with Rome for Zurich. But he did also apply what he was teaching himself. I know I've said others did it, but he did it. But again, he did so in a very low-key way. So it was the others that tended to make all the noise. He tended to do things a bit more quietly. He got married during this time, even though he was a priest. But he did so in secret. Again, we read in uh, Timothy that we're not to forbid marriage. And he took that seriously. But he didn't want to make a big stir publicly, so he did it quietly. He and his wife only went public and had a public ceremony when she was six months pregnant. Because uh, they really couldn't hide it anymore at that point. And he would go on to have four children. He would go on to leave a normal married life. Sounds nice, doesn't it? You might think, well, that's the happy ending. But there were some tricky times ahead. There were internal problems in Zurich. People kept following his position on the Bible to its logical conclusions. In 1523, some people led by a man called Conrad Rabel wanted to give up baptising babies and baptise adults instead. After all, that's what they seem to be reading in the Bible. The Zurich Council, though, was not so keen, and Zwingli went along with the council. He had private chats with the people that seemed to reassure them. They kept pushing them. And despite being told not to, they went ahead with adult baptisms in Zurich in January of 1525. This is the beginning of what we call the Anabaptist movement, or the Baptist movement as we have it now. These were the first adult baptisms in, in hundreds of years. They were called the Anabaptists because that means twice baptised, baptised again. And they were fined, and they were exiled from Zurich under pain of death for what they'd done because they'd gone against the council. One later returned to, uh, to Zurich, a feeling mount, and he was sentenced to death by drowning, and he became the first Baptist martyr uh, in Zurich. Similar things happened with the mass. Zwingli changed it into what we'd recognise as something more like communion, like we shared this morning, but the council were unhappy, and so Zwingli went back to doing mass for several months until the council was ready for the change. And these kind of compromises made some of his supporters very unhappy. But personally, as a church leader, I think Zwingli, what he was trying to do was bring people along with him. Luther was not so bothered about that, we see, uh, but Zwingli was. Speaking of Luther, he was another challenge uh, that Zwingli had to face. Firstly, Luther wrote a book in response to Erasmus's new book, On the Freedom of the Will, and he called his On the Bondage of the Will. And he, in it, he attacks Erasmus for his position in a typical Luther-like fashion. Zwingli apparently was quite upset about this, not because he disagreed with Luther, but because it meant that actually now there'd be a larger breach between them and the humanists, between the reformers and the other people trying to reform the church in different ways. Luther had sort of burned those bridges for him. 
He tried to find an agreement then with Luther. Firstly, to keep the new Protestant churches together. But secondly, also, there were rising military threats from Catholic states, both in Germany and Switzerland. They were looking to invade these places to stop the Reformation. If they could agree, then a new military alliance could be formed and they could defend each other. Luther and Zwingli met in Malberg near Frankfurt in 1529. Many of those in the new Reformation camp wanted this to work, and there were many of the big names from the future of the Reformation who were there at this time. As we noted when we looked at Luther, they agreed on all points, except for the Lord's Supper. Zwingli said the meal was simply a memorial. Luther said that Jesus was really present physically in the meal or in the, around the bread. That was the only thing that they disagreed on. But for Luther, this was a deal breaker. Now, to be fair to Luther, Luther was suspicious of Zwingli because of his position on the Lord's Supper. Because Zwingli's position was the same position as people that Luther had known, who were, let's say, a bit off-piste uh, and went off in all sorts of different directions. One of them was certainly integral in uh, starting the Peasants' Revolt in Germany, where they had attempted to overthrow the government. So Luther probably suspected Zwingli was a bit that way, especially since some of his close friends had become Anabaptists and had gone uh, uh, radical. What it meant, though, is that the emerging Protestant church was split along lines we've now called Lutheran and Reformed. And Zwingli was sad about this. He said of all the people that he could have worked with, it, it would be the people in Wittenberg that he'd want to work with. Luther, when you read him, sounds quite chuffed with himself. Just read away. Uh, and you read his thoughts, he seems quite happy that it all fell apart. Zwingli only lived two years after that. What the Protestants feared would happen, happened. Despite the Reformation having spread to surrounding cantons, surrounding cities, they weren't strong enough to defend themselves militarily. In 1531, five Catholic states declared war on Zurich, and Zurich raised an army of 3,500. Now bear in mind at this point, Zurich only had a population of 7,000. It's about half the size of Otley. So this was basically every man in Zurich came out to fight. And every man included Ulrich Zwingli. They faced an army more than twice their size, and the battle lasted only an hour. But Zwingli died on the battlefield, defending Zurich from attacking forces. Luther wrote of it, it was a judgment of God. Erasmus wrote about it, this is the wonderful hand of God on high. Which is actually a really sad end if you think about it, for a man who wanted to build bridges with both those groups. Actually, he died, and they said quite nasty things about him, really. But let's just take a few moments to think through the bearing that his, uh, these things have on our lives. First thing I want to note is that Zwingli sought to win people over by teaching the Bible. This was his thing. He taught systematically through the Bible, and then had to deal with the issues that arose from people applying it. He wasn't a firebrand, he wasn't a rebel rouser, he was a teacher and a preacher of the Bible. He taught from the Bible. He argued from the Bible. He preached from the Bible. Despite all his other learning, he was a Bible man. He took what we read in 1 Timothy seriously, that we ditch all the man-made rules and we go with the Bible instead. And there's a lot to be said for his approach. And the forms, the forms that he brought in lasted. Like I said, most of us would actually agree more probably with Zwingli now than we would with Luther. 
And they laid a foundation for those who would follow. So John Calvin followed on in that tradition. He was the one who developed it and, and, and took it to uh, further places. Though Calvin went to Switzerland for another 10 years after Zwingli's death, so we've got sort of a gap between, but he sort of took it forward. And it's worth us asking then, are, are we like this? Is our view shaped by what the Bible's taught or by other things? Our view of ourselves, our view of each other, our view on life. Are we prioritising hearing the word of God? Are we letting it change us individually and as a group? Even if that's tricky when we start to apply it to our lives and to our church. So that's the first thing, it was a Bible map. Secondly, Zwingli kept trying to build bridges. Luther tended to burn bridges. Zwingli tried to build them. Again, in many ways, the people around Zwingli would be the ones who carried the Reformation forward, building bridges between camps across Europe. He longed to see cooperation between genuine believers, but it wasn't realised in his life. He longed to, to bring people with him, but agitators made that difficult for him. Maybe he was a bit timid, a bit slow in changing in some areas, but part of that was that he wanted, to, when they moved, for them to move together. If you look at his strategy, he taught on it, he taught on it, he taught on it, and then he would bring change. Others went headlong into full-blown radical reformation, but ended up isolating themselves and bringing division. So are we building bridges where we can? And then finally, Zwingli loved his town. Geneva, when you read about it, Calvin, Calvin hated Geneva. Right? Certainly to start with. But Zwingli loved Zurich, and Zurich loved Zwingli. The people of Zurich really spoke very highly of him. He was beloved by the town. Even his opponents in the town liked Zwingli. He was a man of the town, and he died defending it. Defending it because it was being attacked for changes that he had instigated. He was criticised by the other reformers for taking the sword, but could he really ask the citizens of Zurich to fight to the death to defend their city while he did nothing? I think it's tricky, isn't it? It's not that simple. Whatever we think about that, though, one thing is clear. The people knew that he cared, and the people listened to him when he taught the word of God. So I want to ask us, do we love our town? Do we speak positively about it? Do we seek its good? We're here for a reason, not just the church, but the church in Otley, but people in Ilkley, but further afield. Zwingli was in Zurich for a reason, and God used him there. We're in where we are for a reason, and we pray, don't we, that God will use us here. So that's the life of Zwingli. Hopefully you know a little bit more now. Um, I've got some good books I can recommend on his life if you want to find out a bit more. Uh, It's often called the third man of the Reformation, but we see actually he had a a major contribution to make um, to the Reformation. So let's pray that we can learn lessons from his life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Auric Zwingli. Father, thank you for the way that he taught your words. And Father, thank you for the way that he applied it to his life. Father, help us to be ones who love your word and apply it to our lives and to our church too. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.